Wow. <laughs> Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, choir, praise team, and orchestra leading us in worship. Friends, let's continue in worship. Let's open God's word and ask him to speak to our hearts and believe that we serve a living Christ, right? And he is with us. He is among us this morning and he is here and we are in his presence. So let's continue to worship him and encourage you if you have your Bibles to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. And if you're using the Bibles provided for you, find that on page 1016, 1016. 1 Peter chapter 5, we are coming to the end of our series this morning that we've been involved in all summer long on these summer Sunday mornings, making a journey through 1 Peter. And it's uh, bittersweet, I don't know about you, but uh, coming to a close of a series like this, it's a little bittersweet. It's, for me anyway, I'm glad we've made the journey together and uh, glad uh, to be coming to the close of the journey in some ways, but glad to be home. And in reality, when it comes to 1 Peter and the message of 1 Peter, we think about a journey. The reality for you and me is we're still on the road. We're on our way home, right? Home is not here. Home is not here. And our theme here as we walk through 1 Peter together on this journey is been about excellence in exile. Excellence in exile. We are in exile. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, you may remember that Peter describes Christians. He described the Christians then. He describes us now as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. Two very interesting words. Sojourner means a, a non-citizen. And an exile means someone who's not a citizen and is also just passing through, so to speak. A non-citizen and passing through. When I thought about those two words, I thought about uh, the country church I was raised in, in Indiana. And they used to sing a song. My dad loved it, loved to take the bass line on it come as close as he could. They used to sing, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And the chorus would say, I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That was a great, great country Christian song in a sense, great, great truth. A sojourner in an exile, this world's not my home, I'm passing through. And yet even though our, our lives are not as part of citizens of this world in terms of its culture and morals and our home is in heaven, yet as we make this journey, we're to make it with excellence. Excellence in exile. You might remember the, it was the last verse of chapter four where Peter said, therefore let 
those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The Bible says that all of those believers who seek to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer what? Persecution. But even though we may suffer persecution and trials for our faith, we're not to become hardened and bitter, but we're to be actively doing good. Excellence in exile. Now this last chapter that we are looking at this morning, we began there last Sunday, is focused on our life on the road. How do we live this life on the road and how do we live it together? It's life on the road and it's life together. And you remember as Peter writes this letter back in chapter one, verse one, he's, he's writing to a region of Christians in Asia Minor, in Galatia, in Pontus, Bithynia, Cappadocia, the whole area of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. He's writing to them collectively. But as he comes to the last chapter, he begins to talk to individual churches he begins to talk to individual church leaders and individual church members about their responsibilities. And so last Sunday, we looked at verses one through four of chapter five, and we talked about the responsibilities of church leaders, the responsibilities of church leaders. And that was a challenging message in some ways because I felt like I was a, an audience of one <laughs> preaching to myself, so to speak. And boy, was I ever convicted. <laughs> but now I want you to see, beginning in verse five, and we're gonna come to the close of this book this morning. In verses five, all the way through the end, verse number 14, he talks about the responsibility of church members. What does it mean to do this journey together as Christians, living life together? And he says, this is the way we are to do it. Begin at verse five with me, if you would follow along in your copy of God's word, verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion 
forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, and that is a code phrase for the church in Rome. She being the church, Babylon being a code word for Rome. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. And this is John Mark. He's speaking of John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. Some people have said, you know, it's interesting. We don't have a gospel according to Peter. And that's true. But in reality, John Mark was with Peter for many years at the end of his life. And Mark gives us Peter's view of the gospel of Christ. So does John Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now there's our closing exhortations to exiles about life on the road as we're on our way home. It's about life together. It's about our responsibilities as church leaders and as church members and responsibilities has to do, friends, with our attitudes and our actions. It's our attitudes and our actions. And I want you to notice Peter shares four directions. There are four directions he shares to us about our attitudes and our actions in regard to our responsibilities as we're headed toward heaven. Now notice these. He says, first of all, we have responsibility toward our Christian family. Our responsibility toward our Christian family. Now if I, I want you, if you could, just for a minute, see if you can imagine this scene. It's 116 AD. It's 116 AD, and there, there's a gathering of church representatives. And, and they're concerned as church representatives about how they're going to reach the de-churched of the culture. How are they going to reach the de-churched? How are they going to reach the nuns and the duns? The ones who have no religion, and the ones who are done of religion. They're concerned about that. And they're also concerned about how to be relevant to the different generations that are in the church and that are in society at large because the generations are so different. As a matter of fact, they're, they're concerned as leaders about how they're going to reach and how they're going to keep the, the different age groups. Because research has shown these church leaders that 116 some things. It's shown them some things. It's shown them that there's, there's actually uh, four different kinds of people in the church and in society. Well, there's the traditionalists that were born before 45 AD. And then there's the baby boomers who were born between 46 and 64 AD. And then there's the Gen Xers what a group they were, born between 65 AD and 80 AD. And then there's the millennials. Those ones that were born between 81 AD and 
100 in AD. And that's the conference they're having in the churches at 116 AD. Of course, my tongue is firmly planted in my cheek. I hope you catch that. Because as I say that, I hope inside of you something is saying, no, (laughs) Uh uh-uh, no, no. And that's right, no. Because only in America does that make sense. And only in the last 40 or 50 years in America does that make sense or has anybody tried to make that make sense in 2,000 years of the church history? I've seen it. I've been through it as a pastor. The emphasis years ago was on the boomers, the boomers. And then it was on the busters and the Gen Xers and the millennials. And now today it's millennials, millennials, millennials. And it's enough to make me almost all millennial. (laughs) Not quite. All right. Friends, I want to say something to all of the folks here born between 1945, you that were born between 1946 and 1964, you who were born between 1965 and 1980, you who were born between 1981 and 2000, let me tell you something, newsflash, we're not special. We're not special. It is not as if the world has never known, the church has never known anything of generational stresses or generational angst and anger. That has been in the church through the centuries. What I want us to hear this morning, friends, there is a timeless answer for all generations in the church for reaching the world and ministering each other. And the answer is this, humility. Humility is the answer. Look at verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another. Notice that word, all. I heard a preacher one time say, all means all, and that is all that all means. (laughs) All, that means younger to elder. Younger, respect the elder. Be submissive to the elders. And it means elders. Be respectful to the younger as well. Across generations, there should be humility. Humility, friends, is an attitude. And the attitude is in one word, others. Others. Humility is an attitude, but humility is an action. You could say this, humility is an apparel because that's what Peter says about humility. You notice? He says in verse five, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. That's the only time that word's used, clothe yourself with humility. 
That, that phrase, you know what it literally means? Like what it literally says, put on the servant's apron. All of you, young, old, middle-aged, toward each other, put on the servant's apron. Now, what do you think Peter was thinking about? What do you think was in his mind? Who do you think was in his mind when he said, put on the servant's apron? He went back to the last night of Jesus' life when they were in the upper room and they were all having a meal and they all had dirty feet because not one of the 12 would put on the apron and wash each other's feet before the meal. And so then Jesus, the Lord, got up and he put on the servant's apron and he washed his disciples' feet. That's what Peter is thinking about. That's what's on his mind. And then what did Jesus say to the disciples? He said, you have seen what I have done. I, your leader, have served you. Now you know these things. You will be happy if you, you will be blessed if you, what? Do them. Do them. You will be blessed if you do them. You see, there is a blessing upon those who serve others. There's a blessing upon those who are humble. Look at verse five. What is the blessing? Blessing comes from God, right? God is the blesser. And what does he say? He says, here's the reason you should serve one another. Because God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. He's quoting Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verse 34. It's interesting. He quotes it and James, in his letter, quotes it the exact same way. Evidently, it was truly a proverb. It was a saying among the church. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, friends, I want to tell you, listen, humility is huge. Humility is big because it decides, listen, humility decides whether you experience God's resistance or God's resources. Which do you want? Which do you need? It says God resists the proud. What does that mean? It means literally God stands up against proud people. When Christians are self-directed, self-focused, self-concerned, self-determined. It's like God says, I've had enough of this. And God gets up. Did you ever have your dad get up when you were little? You're yak, 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 yakking, and dad gets up, not good. Our heavenly father gets up and he resists us when our life's all about us. But when we serve others, 
when our attitude is others, God gives his resources. He gives his grace. What is grace? It's his resources. He pours out his giftings, his assistance, his power on those who serve others. Now, friends, don't misunderstand me. Being humble, humility is is not the attitude or action. I don't like me. I don't like me. That's not humility. Humility is not saying, I don't like me. Humility is saying, it's not about me. (laughs) That's what humility is. Humility says, it's really not about me. It's about him and it's about them. That's what my life's about. That's humility. When life is not about me, it's about him, my God and Savior, and it's about them, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who don't know yet my Christ. That's humility. And you see, the truly blessed life, the blessed life is fulfilling those responsibilities to our Christian family. And out of that comes our responsibility, secondly, to our heavenly father. We have a responsibility to our Christian family. Then notice, if you would, we have a responsibility to our heavenly father. I I want you to know something, friends, about humility. You can never submit yourself to others until you first submitted yourself to God. You just can't do it. You can fake it. But you can't really do it. You can't submit yourself and be humble to others until you've submitted and you humble yourself to God. Notice this. He says there are two things that we've literally got to hand over. When we say we've got to submit to God, that means we've got to hand some things over to God. What, What are we supposed to hand over to God? Notice, we're to hand over our control. We're to hand over our control. Look at verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That is, put yourself under God's authority. Surrender control. You see, in the kingdom, folks, listen. In the kingdom, down precedes up. Down precedes up. Before you go up in the kingdom, you've got to go down under the king and his mighty hand. Just like Moses did 40 years in the backside of the desert. Down, then he was lifted up. Joseph, 13 years, a slave in Egypt, down, and then he was brought up. David, 15 or 16 or 17 years out following his father's sheep, down. But then God raised him up. And even our Lord Jesus himself, King of kings and Lord of lords, for 30 years, Subject under the authority 
of his adopted father and his mother, even though he was the son of God, under as a carpenter, and then at the age of 30, God raised him up for his ministry. Friends in the kingdom, down proceeds up. Now hear the promise. When we put ourselves down in the presence of God, what will he do? Look at verse six. It says, he will exalt you at the proper time. That means at just the right time. When, when you need to be promoted, you need to be lifted up to a responsibility or an area of service, whatever it might be, he will lift you up. Friends, listen, you can trust God's timing. God's always on time, right? God does everything in the perfect time. And that includes my life and your life. You can trust God's timing because you can trust his heart. And when God's timing doesn't make sense to you, think about the cross and trust his heart. You can trust God's heart. Why? Because he cares for you. And that's the second thing you've got to hand over. You've got to hand over your control. Then you've got to hand over your cares. Look at verse seven. Cast all, casting all your anxieties. What's that? Things that feel like they're pulling you apart. Casting all your anxieties upon him. Roll them over. Lay them on him. That's the idea. Hand it over. To God because he cares for you. Again, where did Peter learn this? Where did he hear this? He, he learned it sitting on a grassy field in Galilee. When Jesus said, look at the lilies of the field. Solomon never had clothing like this. Look at the birds of the air. If your father takes care of them, won't he take care of you? Not a sparrow falls from the ground, but your heavenly father knows it. You are much more valuable than sparrows. This is where Peter learned this. He learned this from Jesus, that you can trust the father's heart. He cares for you. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Roll your cares upon him because he cares for you. But friend, let me tell you something. You know what that requires? Humility. Some of us in our pride want to hold on to our problems while we work ourselves to death trying to fix them. And we don't see the pride in that. Don't you see that's pride? It's a very proud thing when we resist giving to the Lord our anxieties and cares. Hand them over to him. He cares for you. Folks, listen. He's on the job 24-7, right? He's here with you and he's with that loved one on the other side of the world. 
He's with you while you're praying and he's with your prodigal who's straying. God is with you when you are walking in health and power. He's with you when you're in the intensive care or your loved one's intensive care. He was with you when you were making more money than you could ever imagine and he's now with you when you're flat broke. Hand it over to him. He cares for you. He has responsibility for you. What kind of father would he be if he did not care for you? He's our father, amen? Let go of it. Let go of your control. Let go of your cares. Here's a Sela moment. Here's a stop and pause moment. What's your greatest care? Who is your greatest care? Will you right now hand it over to God? What is the biggest issue you're facing? What is the struggle? It might be from your past. It might not even be in the present. It might be something from your past. Will you give it to God? It might be something you're concerned about the future. It may be in the near future. It can be in the long future. Will you let go of that? Give it to God? Will you right now, trusting in your heavenly father, will you hand that situation over to him? That person over to him. What freedom. And I hope some of you are experiencing the Holy Spirit's freedom right now. As just in your heart, you begin to open your clenched fist about that situation. There's freedom in fulfilling our responsibilities to our Christian family. There's freedom in fulfilling our responsibilities to our Heavenly Father. There's freedom, but listen, there's also got to be in our lives vigilance. Freedom requires eternal vigilance. And so that means our attitude and our action has got to be very clear toward our spiritual enemy. Our spiritual enemy. Now notice, doesn't Peter change things very quickly? Verse seven, he's talking about family. He's talking about the father. He's talking about love. And then in verse eight, he says this, notice, he turns very quickly to a military, a military illustration. He talks about an enemy and we have to stay alert to an enemy. And he says, we've got to stay alert to this spiritual enemy with alert recognizance. It's like we're on military mover, maneuvers. We've got to have a, a recognizance. We've got to be watching for the enemy. Verse number eight, he says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have a dreadful enemy. 
Maybe you've seen the license plates from Pennsylvania. Sometimes they say, you've got a friend in Pennsylvania. That's good, I hope you do. But I wanna tell you, you've got an enemy in Tennessee. Notice how he describes our enemy. He describes him as a liar. He calls him our adversary. The word adversary means accuser. The Hebrew word behind this is Satan. Our adversary, he's an accuser. He's the devil. The devil means he's a deceiver and a liar. Satan, he's an accuser. He's the devil. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. But not only is he a liar, notice Peter says he is a lion. He's a liar and a lion. He is prowling about. He's like a roaring lion, a wild beast. That's, he's roaring with determination. He's dangerous. He's a roaring lion. And he is restless. He's prowling around like a lion in, in circles, a flock or a herd of beasts. And he is ravenous, roaring, restless, and ravenous. He is seeking someone to devour. You know what that word devour means there, Christian? It means this, gulp down. Satan is looking for wandering Christians to gulp down. What should we do? I know what I'm thinking first when I say that. What should we do? I'm thinking run, right? Shoe leather express, right? One foot in front of the other. Run. No. He doesn't say run from him. What does he say to do? He says, resist him. Active recognizance, be watchful for him. And when you see him, resist him. Active resistance. Verse nine, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. Now, friends, we learn a whole lot here about dealing with the devil. This is Peter telling us about how to do spiritual warfare. And he and Paul and James see eye to eye on it. How do we resist the devil? Well, notice a couple of insights here. He says, resist him firm in your what? Faith, resist him firm in your faith. What does that mean? It includes, listen, it includes worship. How do you resist the devil? How do you resist him? Well, what's the context? Look back at verse number six. Submit yourself to God. You know where you are safest from the lion? You're safest when you're near your father in worship. Worship him. Satan hates worship. Oh, he detests worship. He can't stand worship. You know why? Because that's what he wanted. 
He said, I will be like the Most High. That's what I want. And when you worship the Most High God, it infuriates the devil. Give it to him. Let him see you and hear you in worship. Personal worship. Let him see you get alone with God Almighty because you're not alone. Let him see you come to church with a Bible in your hand and an open heart and ready not to examine but to express worship to God. Let him see that. He hates it. He has no power against worship. And he hates the word. Resist him in the faith. What do you do? Resist him with the word of God. Don't you love what Paul said in Ephesians 6? He says, this Bible is the sword of the spirit. Isn't that great? The sword of the spirit. You know what the word sword there means? It doesn't mean what a big long curved saber. No, it's a Roman sword. You know how Roman soldiers use their sword? They'd hold up their shield. Remember shield of the faith? They take that short sword and they would march at the enemy. Shields connected. And they would just poke and poke and poke at the enemy with that sword. And Paul says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now listen to me. Word of God there doesn't mean the whole Bible. The whole Bible is the word of God. But the term he uses there is not logos, the whole message, but the rhema. It means the utterances of God. You know what that means? That means when the devil comes against you, you reach into your arsenal, you take out a word from the Lord and you give it to the devil. Don't you love the idea of sticking it to the devil? Why? He hates, he's a liar. What's his weakness? The truth. How do we stand against him? With the truth. How do you know the truth? You've got to read the word so that you can have a word from the word. Folks, some of us are walking around and we're like toy soldiers. We got a, we got a big fancy scabbard hanging off our belt. It's called our church Bible. It's our church Bible. But we don't know it because we don't read it. And when we get assaulted by the enemy, we reach in. We don't have a grip on the word. Satan is not afraid of the Bible you carry to church. He's not afraid of the Bible on your nightstand. He's not afraid of the Bible on your desk. He's not afraid of the Bible on your sofa table. He is afraid of the Bible that's in your heart. Use the word of God. I remember many years ago, I was so going through a long, long illness. I mentioned it last week, back in 2000. It was such a dark time, dark, dark, dark. And it seemed like I'd wake up at two or three in the morning. Have you ever done that? 
And it just feels like you can almost hear the laughter of the demons. And there were times, listen, there were many times. All I could do is just put my Bible there in the dark. I just put my Bible on my chest and I just begin to quote the scriptures. Things that would come to my mind. <laughs> I remember a few times Susan woke up or I woke up and I, I'd had a good night's sleep. I looked over her and she didn't look so good. I, I said, what's wrong? She said, you kept me up all night long. I said, what? She said, you were rebuking the devil in your sleep all night long. You were calling him out and you were rebuking him and I didn't dare wake you up so I just had to get in here with you but I was awake and you were asleep. You wore me out. Friends, listen. Use the word of God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Not afraid of you, but he's afraid of your father. And he's afraid of your big brother. And resist Satan with an awareness. Verse 9. This is so strengthening. Knowing that the same sufferings are being accomplished by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. Folks, I want to tell you something. We're not alone. There is a great host of followers of Jesus. We're not alone. And I think there is by inference here a reminder of how important it is not to be alone. You know, when you're under trial and temptation, you know the last place you want to go is where? Church. Last place you want to go is to your Bible group, to your growth group or your ABF. That's the last place you want to go. The last place you want to go is go meet with those folks. But you know what? That's when we need it most. We need each other. Last thing I can just touch on here is our responsibility toward our earthly pilgrimage, toward our Christian family, toward our heavenly father, toward our spiritual enemy, but then we have responsibility toward our recognition of our earthly pilgrimage. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know what some of the sweetest words in the Bible are? Right here. A little while. You suffer for just a little while. Suffering is temporal. It's temporary. It's, it's a little while. But God's call is eternal. He's called us to eternal glory in Christ. And that call that God has made in bringing us to salvation, he will bring to completion. Isn't that great? God's call is eternal, but listen, God's grace is personal. His grace is personal. He's the God of all grace. Do you see that in verse 10? That's the only time in the Bible he's called that. Peter says he is the God of all grace, overflowing with grace. 
And he himself, that's the emphasis, he himself will do this for you while, yes, you are suffering. He himself will do these four gracious things. He will restore you. That means he's going to finish what he's completed. He who has begun a good work in you will what? He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to restore you. He's going to confirm you. That means to support you, hold you up. He's going to strengthen you. Again, that's the only time that word is used in the whole Bible. It means he's going to impart strength to you. We're not sufficient for the things we go through. But Christ is all sufficient, right? What did God say to Paul who prayed three times that the stake in the flesh might be removed from him? Three times he said, my grace is sufficient. It's more than enough. And then God himself will establish you. That means he will build you on a foundation. A firm foundation. A rock-like foundation. And isn't it interesting that Peter says that? What's Peter's name mean? A rock. And Jesus is the huge cornerstone. The huge slab. And what did Jesus say? Peter heard him say this. A wise man will build his house on what? The rock. And who is it that is putting that foundation under us? It's God himself. God is a builder and he's a builder of believers. Well, I heard a country preacher one time. You know what he said? (laughs) After he preached a long sermon, he said, well, friends, I don't know if I've done you any good but I sure have preached myself happy. (laughs) Peter has preached himself happy. Verse 11, he's happy. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Yes, I've got to stand before Caesar. Yes, they may nailed me up to a cross, but to him, Be the dominion forever and ever. They can't take that from me. Some friends took me and Susan to see a movie recently. And I was so looking forward to it because I'd read the book that goes with the movie. The book is called The Insanity of God. The insanity of God, what a title, right? The insanity of God, written by a man who had used a pen name because he's been on mission service so many years and other people's lives would be in danger. His name is Nick Ripkin, a man who served in very, very dangerous countries And he learned something about persecution. He learned how God uses persecution to purify and grow his church. He noticed that wherever there was persecution, the church was purified and it grew stronger and grew in number. And so he wondered if he could prove this statistically. 
And so his mission allowed him to go to the most dangerous fields on the face of the earth and interview in secret Christian leaders, brothers and sisters, and talk to them about persecution and what persecution has done for them. And he found out that it's almost like God's insanity. He uses the persecution of his people to build his church, his kingdom. But the last story he tells is of an interview with a man from the Middle East who was a trained assassin. He'd killed with his own hands over 300 people. He said he used to feel the blood running over his fingers from their slit throats. And as the blood oozed over his fingers, he gave praise to Allah. But this murderer began to have visions of his bloody hands. Visions of the people he'd killed. And in his visions, he would try to get the blood off, but nothing would take the blood off. Nothing would take the blood off. And then one time in the vision, he saw that he was told by a being in the vision that if he could get to the Bible and read the Bible, he would find out how he could get the blood off his hand. It took him a year to find a Bible. And then he began to read the Bible over and over and over. And then finally he understood that the blood on his hands had been put on Jesus. And when he cried out to Jesus, the nightmares went away and he was free. And he became an incredible servant of the Lord smuggling Bibles into that very dangerous area, risking his own life. And finally, Nick Ripkin was able to interview this man in secrecy, but the rule was one light bulb on in the room and the man would stand in the dark. And Nick Ripkin began to interview the man. And after several hours, Nick Ripkin said this, you, you haven't said anything to me about your family. How does your family serve with you in this? And with that, the man leapt out of the darkness face to face with Nick Ripkin. And he grabbed him by the shoulders. And here's what he said. How can he ask me? How can God ask it of me? I have given him my life. I have sacrificed my life. I have put my life in danger. I would give my life for him. But how can he ask for my wife? How can he ask for my children? How can he do it? How can he do it? And Nick Ripkin said in that moment, he feared for his life. And then this thought came to him. He said, I asked the man, well, I guess the question is this. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth your life? Is he worth the lives of your children? The man stepped back and he began, began to shudder all over. And then with a peace on his face, he said, yes, Jesus is worth it. He is worth my life, my wife's life, 
He is worth my children's life. Jesus Christ is worth it. You know, friends, I guess it just comes down to that, doesn't it? When we want to hold on to our life and control and we don't want to let go of our concerns, we want to do what we want to do, I, just, I guess it just comes down to this, doesn't it? Really? Is Jesus worth it? What's your answer? Is he worth it? I want to tell you, friends, if the Lord Jesus doesn't come, it is not going to get easier. It's going to get harder and harder and harder. But he's worth it. Let's bow our heads. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy, O Lord. Here is my invitation to you. Would you take that concern? Would you take that control? Would you take whatever you have gripped in your hands and would you say to Jesus right now, Jesus, you are worth this. You are worth this. I release this concern. I release this person. I release this past. I release these issues. You are worthy. My life is yours. You're worthy. Let's stand quietly at our feet and let's just sing this to the Lord. It's our prayer. And here's my invitation. My invitation maybe is for you just to come about a situation, come about a concern, come about a problem, come about anything and just say, you're worth it, Lord. Let go of it today. You are worthy. You're worth it. May that be our response right now. Let's just sing this to him. Let's mean it from our hearts.